from the crowd. Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, What should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, My friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now, take it easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you will, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. Wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for reading, Anne. And hello again, everyone. It's good to be with you all. Um, my name is Rich, uh, if you don't know me, and I'm going to be continuing uh, the next part of our brand new series in the parables of Jesus. And these are short fictional stories that pack a punch full of meaning. And as Alice has already mentioned at the end, we're going to be celebrating communion together. But first, we're going to explore the parable that we've just heard read for us so well by Anne. And often it can be easy to read Jesus' parables as ethical tales, similar to how we might read other short fictional stories like maybe Aesop's fables. For example, uh, in the story of the tortoise and the hare, who have a race, quite a famous uh, story, um, the hare is arrogant, the tortoise is kind of resolute and keeps going, uh, and slow and steady wins the race. And the meaning is clear. For us as a listener, we're supposed to hear that story and think, okay, I am not going to be arrogant. I'm going to keep going and I'll get my reward. And it can be easy uh, to hear parables and stories like the ones we've just looked at from Jesus in the same way, to hear it and immediately apply an ethical lesson to ourselves. Maybe in this case, don't be greedy. And that's that. And that's really typical of how we in the 21st century West often read the Bible. We try and quickly build it into a logical system that lets us jump to the immediate and personal application. But Jesus didn't tell parables as a way of sugarcoating ethical lessons. Like there's something that he wants us to do, so he wraps it in a quirky story in order to make it a bit more palatable. A spoonful of sugar, perhaps, to help the medicine go down. Instead, they're much more like a meal for us to savour. That as we sit with them, as we chew on them, they begin to reshape how we see the world around us in light of who Jesus is and what it means 
for God's kingdom to arrive. That's what the parables are all about. They're not primarily ethical lessons for us, though of course there are things that we can learn from them which will inevitably change the way we live in the world. But first and foremost, they are stories which tell us something about who Jesus is and what he's doing in the inauguration of God's kingdom that he is revealing. So let's dive into the story and set the scene. Jesus is teaching to a crowd of many thousands of people. They're all pressing against one another. And in the midst of this rabble, a man fights his way to the front, presumably at great effort, to get to Jesus and to speak to him. And he brings with him a problem. Seemingly, uh, the man's father has died and his brother has received the whole inheritance as was the custom, but is refusing to share any of it with him. And that's important to note because it tells us that the man is not appealing to Jesus to reconcile the two of them. He's not coming and saying, Jesus, there's a problem between me and my brother. Would you come and bring healing? Instead, there's already been a split. That relationship has already broken. And he wants Jesus to come and put a final dividing judgment between the two of them to separate brother from brother for good. But that's not what Jesus is about. As uh, we'll have seen if we were reading through Luke and getting to this point in the narrative, we'll know Jesus has come to inaugurate a new kingdom, a new way of being and living in the world. His goal isn't to apply law in order to finalize division. It's to undo the very foundations of their dispute by reshaping how both brothers see the world with a new kingdom perspective that puts everything in its right place. Jesus is revealing a way of seeing the world that trusts in God's provision, that is generous towards others, and that lives with a perspective that keeps God at the center. And to do that, he tells them this parable. There's a man, a man who is already wealthy, already powerful and influential, a rich landowner. And he receives a bumper crop one year. It's not as a result of anything he's done. It's simply an overflow from a generous God. But the question for him is, what will I do with it? How will I steward this surplus, this abundance that has come into my possession? How does he respond? Well, if you've got uh, your Bible open and you're in Luke 12 uh, with me, if you look down at verse 17, this is what it says. He said to himself, what should I do? What should I do? And for Jesus's original hearers, that line would be throwing up all kinds of alarm bells. Literally speaking, it translates as he dialogued with himself. And that doesn't sound so strange to us, but in the Middle East at that time, that would stand out as a radically unhealthy way of living. Families, communities, villages at that time were tightly knit. 
everybody's business was everybody else's business. Important decisions were never made in isolation, but after discussion and deliberation. But this man, he either has nobody or he chooses to involve nobody. No friends, no family. The only person he can talk to is himself. And so his inward conversation is almost a foregone conclusion before it's even started. What shall I do with my crops? How can I enlarge my barns? What will best serve my future comfort and pleasure? In his inwardly curved conversation, there's no place for God who's given him the abundance. There's no place for his workers who've done the hard work of bringing in the harvest. There's no place for any family or any friends or any community. He is alone. And instead, the farmer is drawn deeper and deeper into his own thoughts and his own desires. Muhammad bin Al-Tayyib, an Egyptian theologian from the 11th century, writes this. He imagines that a person created in the image of God can be fully satisfied with food for the body. He imagines that the self is animal-like and that its highest pleasure and greatest form of satisfaction is eating and drinking. And that perspective speaks quite a lot to our own culture in the 21st century, that pursuit of self, of individualism, of personal satisfaction and pleasure. But don't forget, the point of the parables is not for us to jump right to an immediate personal application for ourselves. It's first and foremost to reveal something about Jesus and his kingdom. So how do we see that at work? Well... God breaks in. This man, living a self-consumed life, suddenly finds himself confronted by the one who has given him everything, but who he's lost sight of completely. And God is declaring to him that his time is up. His death is at hand, and what good will possessions do him anymore? All he had wasn't really his. It was given to him to steward, to look after, to play his part in the great creation mandate that's given to humanity in Genesis chapter 2, right at the very start of the Bible. Humanity is called to rule over creation alongside God in order to bring about order and beauty and abundance and fill the earth with God's goodness. We are to be stewards of an abundant world given by a generous God. And instead, this man has used what he's been given to further himself in a vain pursuit of that which can never truly satisfy. And at the end of his life, will be left with nothing to show for it and nobody to share it with. And St. Augustine, another North African theologian, comments this. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor 
were much safer storehouses than his barns. And back at the interaction between Jesus and the disgruntled brother, the implication is clear. Though he is facing what could rightly be seen as an injustice, with his eyes fixed on storing up earthly wealth, on finalizing the divide between himself and his brother, this man too has begun to curve in on himself. Whoever the inheritance goes to, or however it's split, both are responsible for what they have, whether lots or little, as stewards of what God has generously given, not just material possessions, but their very lives themselves. Walking the road towards an insatiable desire for more only leads to destruction. But Jesus has come to inaugurate a new way. The kingdom of God is, even now, breaking in. Like the voice of God in the parable to announce a re-creation. Riches available in a renewed relationship with him that puts all earthly wealth back into its proper perspective. Jesus has come to bring life. Life to the full, not in any of the ways a material world might expect, but by perfectly living out what it means that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, as the psalmist writes. The physical world matters deeply to God. This is not a call to some kind of super spiritual enlightenment that pays no attention to physical reality. It's not that material possessions are bad. It's that something better is here. As Jesus unpacks in the verses that come after this passage, and I'd really encourage you, read through the whole of Luke chapter 12 at some point this week, and you'll see an invitation to draw near to a God of abundant generosity who will give us all that we need and to seek him first. Where we put our treasure, Jesus says later on, the things that we run after, the things that we sacrifice for, the things that we give our time to, the things even that drift across our minds when we're thinking about nothing. That's where our hearts will be found. That's what we're building our lives upon. But a new kingdom has come. And this kingdom comes into being not in a man bought into riches, but one born into poverty in a backwater corner of an empire that cared nothing for him. Not in a man who walked opulent palace hallways, but one who walked dusty roads to towns and villages full of ordinary people like you and me. Not a man who commanded legions and armies, but one whose closest friends would abandon him at the first sign of trouble. He had neither riches, nor status, nor power, as the world would define them. But, as Jesus of Nazareth hangs on a Roman cross, everything changes. It's an announcement that goes out to the very ends of the earth that everything that has been broken in our lives and in our world has been dealt with. 
every way in which we have been the farmer in the story, inwardly curved, sin-sick, self-centered. Every way we have succumbed to the call of the culture around us to idolize money and possessions and pleasure above all else. Every way we have taken what has been given by a generous God and stored it up for ourselves. Neglecting the poor, depriving others, failing to be image bearers of a God who is always giving. Every fractured relationship that we find within ourselves and between us and God and between us and others. All of it has been carried by Jesus to the cross and put to death there. And then he rises again. The birth of a new creation inaugurated in the midst of the brokenness of the old in order that there might be a new way. That we might know that God has committed himself to the restoration of this world through a brand new kingdom. That he has confirmed it by raising Jesus from the dead and that he has begun it now in and through us. So the question for us today is this. Will we sit with and savour this story? Will we allow it to shape again who we are in the light of who Jesus is? Will we embrace his new kingdom of trust in God's provision, of generosity towards others, of a perspective that doesn't store up riches but is rich towards God? Will we allow Jesus to come and change everything for us? This is a moment to come and allow God to meet with you wherever you are, in your home, with friends, around the world, watching on demand. This is a moment for God to come and be with you. D.L. Moody wrote about how before we can ask for God to come and fill us, we need to pray for him to come and empty us. That all of the things we filled ourselves with, the distractions of busyness and pleasure and comfort and selfishness, the sin that so gripped the farmer in the parable, they all need to be allowed to drain away. We need to allow God to come and empty us of everything that might stand between us and Jesus. Because until we do, it's no good praying to be filled. We're already full of something else. And as we sing now about what it means for God's kingdom to come, let's look to Jesus again. Let him meet with you in this moment. Reshape your perspective, reorder your priorities, allow him to come and change everything for you again. We're gonna respond by taking communion together, a physical sign of the promise of God to his people that wherever we are, scattered as we are in this moment, live or on demand in Jesus, we are together. We are united as his people. We're called to live out that new kingdom culture of trust, of generosity, of perspective.
And so as we do, let's pause in this moment. Allow God to speak to you again, to put his finger on anything in your life where like the farmer, you've allowed the things of the world to take center stage. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he took wine and he poured it out. And as he did, he gave us a meal that points us to the wonder of what he has done and invites us to receive the goodness of it again. When Jesus wanted to give his followers then and now a way of understanding and applying the meaning of his death on the cross, he didn't give us a theory or a program or a list of questions to answer. He gave us an act to perform, a meal to share. It's a meal that speaks of our glorious union with him, a meal that speaks of the magnitude of what it cost him on the cross, a meal that speaks of embracing him entirely and wholeheartedly, a meal that speaks of his provision of grace to us each and every day, a meal that speaks of repentance and turning to him again, no matter where we are or what we've done. It is a physical confirmation that the new kingdom has come. And it's an opportunity to receive the one who is that perfect embodiment of the good news of the kingdom. So that's the invitation for us this morning. Will you come to Jesus? Come just as you are, come broken, come hurting, come hungry and thirsty, come happy and abundant, but come. The invitation is wide open. Receive him again today. If you would like to say yes to that in this moment, I'd encourage you to take some bread and some wine or juice or equivalents. If you're someone who's joining us this morning maybe and, and looking in, who says, I'm not sure I'm quite ready for that just yet, then there's no pressure. Maybe just use this as a moment uh, to pause and to reflect again on everything that we've been looking at together this morning. And so as we come to the table, we come allowing God to fill our gaze once again. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And just as these parables are given for us to savour in order that they would draw us to him and enable us to be filled with his resurrection life, so too is communion a moment for us to savour Jesus, to allow the power of what he has done for us in dying and rising again, to wash away all the stuff in our lives that gets in the way of him, to turn from our self-centeredness, to receive his abundant life, to turn from our sin, to receive his overflowing forgiveness, to turn from our shame, 
receiving his words of everlasting love and grace spoken over us. Lord Jesus, come and make us new from the inside out. Let's eat together. Paul writes again, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever, wherever, online or in person, just as the good news of the kingdom is a proclamation that declares that Jesus is Lord as a feast for our hearts and our minds, so too is communion a physical good news proclamation that declares that Jesus is Lord as a feast for our bodies and our souls. That just as surely as even now we can taste the bread as we can taste the juice, so surely can we know that he has done everything we need to draw us into relationship with him, that he has bound us to himself forevermore in order that the riches of his grace might be displayed through us to the whole of creation. Let's drink to that. Why don't I pray? And then I'll hand back over to Alice. Father, I thank you that you are a God of abundant generosity and abundant mercy. That however we come to you this morning, you rush to meet us again. That you are a God who invites us to know your provision for us not once at the start of our Christian walk, but each and every day to come to you, to trust in you, to lean on you, to rely on you. Father, you are good to us. You are trustworthy in all of your ways. We receive you again today, even as we turn from all of the things that so fill our lives with other stuff. And we pray, Lord, would you empty us and would you fill us? Fill us again with your resurrection life. Fill us with your new kingdom perspective. Sow it into us like seeds in the ground that we might go out from this place from each of our places, knowing you, enjoying you, and living for you in all of the different contexts that we find ourselves. Thank you, Lord. Amen. <laughs>